I don't know if memory is ever completely without pain, but you want to arrive at the point where you can retrieve parts of your past without it being a lacerating thing. And the, the reading of the classics and the meditating and, and the yoga, those were all mechanisms which allowed me to access memory uh, without it being painful, with it, with it being a, a source of power for me. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Today we have Mariana Torgovnik. Mariana, so happy to have you. Mariana is an author, and we will be talking about many different things. She's written uh, two two different books, Mariana, is that correct? Uh, no, I've actually More? written about seven books. Oh, seven books. Today we're talking particularly about two, memoirs, which memoirs. are memoirs, yeah. uh, but you've written seven, so you are a, definitely a, a really big author. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am so happy you're here. So tell us, where do you live? Where are you right now? Uh, right now, I am in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, uh, in New York you're City. You're in the city, okay. Uh, I live here for part of the year. It's unusual to be here in the summer, but here I am. Um, and the other place I live is Durham, North Carolina, where Duke University is, because I'm a professor at Duke. Okay, so in in the summers, you're in usually in the city and then uh, sometimes yeah I, I i just finished directing a summer program here called duke in new york arts and media so i was here for for that and then my daughter has a birthday next week so i stayed <laughs> stayed in order to attend to a birthday party and then i'll head back to durham after that so are you a new yorker basically i am then. a new yorker i was born in brooklyn um, raised in Brooklyn. Uh, my first memoir is about growing up in Bensonhurst, which is a somewhat notorious community in Brooklyn, um, and growing up Italian-American. Um, we left out my middle name, which is DiMarco, which identifies the Italian part of me. And I sometimes wonder, Mariana DiMarco is such a good name. Yes. Why I switched to Mariana Turgovnik, although I guess I know. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm Kendra Rinaldi. So Rinaldi is my name, is, is not my Mary. I never changed my name, Rinaldi, which is also Italian. So I never changed my name to Mary name. So I kept, I kept my name. So well, that, always made, that, have a... that would have made sense. Um, <laughs> You sense. could always, you could always uh, have the artistic name be whatever you wanted to I be. Suppose. You know, yeah. you could be just, you know, like Prince had just a symbol, right? It was his. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you could always be whatever you want, be whatever you want to be named. So Mariana, so you then wrote then this first memoir. So tell us about that memoir, the the first one, and then uh, okay. what is it called? Uh, the first one is called Crossing Ocean Parkway, and. Um, I get it. it had a subtitle, which which I removed from the second edition. What was it? What was it? Readings by an Italian American daughter, um, and it was a collection of essays about growing up Italian American in Brooklyn, 
um, in the era when I did. I'm, I'm, I, I would guess I'm maybe. I would guess I'm, I love it. You. I love it. I love. I, oh, I thought you were gonna say you were gonna guess your age. I'm like, I would guess I'm. Uh. <laughs> uh, no, I was I was growing up at a, at a, at a period when Bensonhurst, uh, the neighborhood where I was born, uh, was was largely Italian American. Um, there are always rumors of mafia connections, which did not exist, except on one particular street, which still has mafia connections, uh, called 18th Avenue. Uh, but I, not not where I was growing up. I was distinctly working class. And so I was a working class Italian-American girl. And um, in those days, working class Italian-American girls were not expected to go to college. So I really, really, really wanted to go to college. And my parents really, really want, wanted me to be a typist. So there was a little bit of a conflict and a little bit of drama Oh, there. so they wanted you to have was a trade and not go to college, like be a typist <laughs> instead of... conceivable to them because yes. of working class origins and uh, the southern italian um one generationness of the family so it was inconceivable to them and i really wanted college so um the fact that the first four essays in that book are about um being this italian american kid from bensonhurst and having these ambitions and they're not being nurtured uh, by my culture um and how how i navigated that uh, i i kind of counterpoint my experiences with a racial murder that took place in Bensonhurst uh, in 1989, uh, when a, a young man named Yusuf Hawkins was walking through the neighborhood to f find a used car. And uh, he was mistaken for somebody who was dating an Italian-American girl in the neighborhood and was shot. And this was a celebrated um, incident in New York. Uh, there, were, there were demonstrations by Italian-Americans uh, there was a trial and and the young men as far the italian young men as far as i know were convicted uh but it was a it was a celebrated instance and it, it occurred when my parents were visiting me in durham north carolina so okay italian american working class girl and i find myself teaching first at williams college which is a very waspy um i just visited there last week and i, I didn't see a single uh black person which was even still so up to now it's still that way even still, it was really very, I mean, I had a, I've had a black colleague who used to say, the buildings are white, the people are white, the snow is white. You know, it, it, it still seemed very much like that. And then uh, when I left Williams, I went to uh, Duke, which is um, a, a more diverse university. But at the time I joined it, not so very diverse. It's become very diverse since. Anyway, so it's about the cultural disjunction between those two things. And for me, the bridge was marriage to uh, a Turkovnik, a Jewish American who lived on the other side of Cross the Ocean Parkway, hence Cross the Ocean Parkway. And then the second half of that book is critical readings of um, uh, The Godfather, the Mario Puzo novel, uh, Camille Paglia, the Italian American critic, um, the use of the cultural we, that, which is a, a mm. voice that cultural critics use a lot. And then it, as I was finishing that book, my father died. And so I included an essay about my father's death. Uh, he died of lung cancer. And it, it kind of rounded it off. And I, I, was, I was quite young then. I was in my 30s when I wrote that book. It seems rather audacious to write a memoir, but it, it did very well. And I heard from a lot of people, and still do, it spoke very strongly to uh, gay people, to Southern men. Um, yeah, it spoke, it spoke to, to a lot of people, and I, I would get letters from them. I love what you're saying because the fact that even though you're, you're telling your story as an Italian-American growing up in New York, how our stories 
like you said, can find common ground with someone else that's also living this diversity. And then you're, I'm sure with your, then marrying also then your husband growing up then in a Jewish, right, Jewish community, he could even relate to things that you had also experienced. Yeah, up. yeah. Well, Jewish culture is, is somewhat notoriously in favor of higher education. So, you know, for, it was it, it was a kind of a, a medium for me to enter into a sphere um, where my my intelligence, my, my, my skills, was my admired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I removed readings by an Italian American daughter. And this is, this is odd. Um, the only negative mail I received about this book was from Italian American men, um, who totally misunderstood and thought that I, uh, resented being Italian, which I don't, um, or, or that I, I, I felt that I had been abused as a child which I wasn't. I just felt that I was in a milieu where it was harder to achieve my ambitions. Mm-hmm. My parents were very loving. I realized later that, in fact, I would not have gotten to go to college if they were authentically opposed. They just didn't know what it meant. Um, and so it took a long time to negotiate it. In fact, when I, you know, at academic tenure is right when you get. Mm-hmm, that tenure, uh-huh. When I called my parents and told them I had tenure, they said, oh, 10 years, that's wonderful. <laughs> and you know, it was just, it was, it was a, a realm that was not, you know, it just wasn't in their cosmography. That, you know, what you're, what you're talking about, the aspect of when we are being something, like in this case of what your parents maybe thought you'd be, the expectations they thought or had of who their daughter or children, well, you had more than, it was with more than you. Um, yeah, with brother, how many? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of what their children are going to be, and their their expectations based on their own upbringing, like you're saying, you did you weren't judging them, right? But it was also these expectations of if you're going to be a mother, then what kind of job are you going to have so that then you can be a mother, a wife? Because these are the expectations they had created right so their projection of your life was based on their own life correct uh, italian american culture has changed a lot mm-hmm. um and, and has, has mainstream to a very large extent over the last 10 years but if you think back even to what was her name um was it geraldine ferraro who ran for president a uh, vice president way back when she was dogged by rumors of mafia affiliations mm-hmm. and other things that very much were stereotyping Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo's father, mm-hmm. same uh-huh. thing. So um, Italian Americans have come a very long way over the last decade, uh, but it was um, especially Italian Americans who stayed in the neighborhoods to which they immigrated. Uh, they were very afraid of having their children leave those neighborhoods. And when Italian Americans did leave uh, Southern Brooklyn, as they eventually did, now largely a Chinese American community, which is an interesting replacement in and of itself. But they they moved en masse to Staten Island, which is the only part of New York City which is solid, pretty solidly Republican and um, politically conservative rather than politically liberal. So there's a kind of um, kind of a cohesiveness to the culture, and I wasn't part of that cohesiveness. Of that, okay. Well, thank you for for sharing that kind of clarification. Now, let's go back into your family dynamics. Then you uh, get you got an education. Then you became a professor. You get married to somebody from the other side of cross <laughs> the other side of the track, as they say. 
right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how then were all these things and the family dynamics? Tell us what they looked like after you started making all these different milestones and decisions in your life and the family dynamics between you and your parents and your sibling and your brother. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's a lot. I, I think it, it differs for each for each each person. Uh, my father was the parent I most associated with uh, New York City. He was, um, I thought it was a very glorious profession, but it actually wasn't. He was a bank messenger, which means he carried things between bank branches. But I associated him with the city and he prided himself on the knowledge of the city and he took me places. So I always associated him with that. My mother was um, a garment worker. Uh, she was a good mother very good cook, uh, famously good cook, but she had been, this is odd, she was born in America and then sent back to Calabria in Italy where she lived until she was 16. Now Calabria is still a very poor and very peasanty kind of uh, place. So that's her story. And she, and she was a, not a sentimental lady, I would say, but a, but a, a good mother, a, a loving mother. Uh, my brother was a solid, I don't, I don't know what political demographic you, you, your, your audience consists of. My, my brother was a, was a solid Republican, and uh, I went to NYU in Columbia, and I was not. So we gradually grew apart. My brother and I just had different, different backgrounds, different tastes. I, I mean, I was living in New York and North Carolina in, in university milieus, and he was, um, he was in suburban New Jersey. He, he drank, he smoked. And shortly after my mother died, he got pancreatic cancer, which is not a great form of cancer at all. That's what my mom passed away cancer. from, so I, I can understand yeah, it. Yeah, you what... know, I still don't know why it's become so common. Um, and he was, um, um, he, we, we had assumed a certain amount of longevity in the family because there had been extreme longevity on my mm. mother's side of the family. And, you know, obviously pancreatic yeah. cancer, is, it, it, it's a tough one. And he chose, um, like many people, including a friend who's entering the last stages of that now, he's just chose to kind of um, do the chemo all the way until it became actually too late to go to a hospice. And it was, it was hard for me because, especially after my mother died, I, I realized all the many things you don't say to people when they're still alive. And I really wanted to talk to him and he was kind of determined not to talk. He was on his third marriage. I liked his third wife very much, but the two of them were just, when I would, I would fly up to see him, they just, they, they just didn't want to talk about it. You know, there, there was, it was, uh, he was in the hospital. He was getting chemo. Nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. We would just talk as though we were in their living room. And for me, that was, that was difficult mm. and hard. So um, this book, Crossing Back, is essentially about the difficulty of trying to mourn when it seemed to me these were ordinary losses. My mother was in her 90s, you know, an ordinary time to die. My brother, we hadn't been that close. So exactly why was I having such a hard time yes. <laughs> with the grieving process? And so it took me a long time to figure that out. There were a couple of reasons. Um, one was that um, I'm, I'm, I'm temperamentally somebody who doesn't like to be in a position which seems vulnerable and being in grief is a vulnerable state. That is reinforced by a culture, Italian-American culture, which uh, is strongly invested in, you know, looking good for other people. And, you know, when people are dying in your family, it's not so Put on bad. your knickers, so be bad. a big girl. Yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta, 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 gotta yes, show a good yes, face to yeah. the world. Uh, and then the final thing, and this, um, this is the one which 
I think was, no, there was actually two more things. One was that I, as a literary critic, I had been writing about World War II. Hey, a lot of people die in World War II. And it was hard to not think about everything that had happened, you know, 9-11, the COVID crisis. It was hard to think about all the death in the world and to be invested in personal losses. It seemed to me somehow small-minded of me. Oh, okay. So and comparative thing, grief. I think comparative also, grief. Comparative okay. grief. Comparative grief. The final thing, and I think in many ways the biggest, is that um, many years before, um, I had lost a child in infancy. He died at three months mm -hmm. old. And I had never really grieved that one properly. And when my daughters were born, and, you know, I moved on. It wouldn't have occurred to me to continue to mourn the death of a child. But of course you do. Um, and that was complicating uh, the mourning process for my mother and my brother. It was very strange. And I, anyway, it took me a long time to unpack that. I did it by means that I describe in the book. Uh, so uh, it's not a how-to book. It's not a self-help book, but it does have some lessons in it. Thank you for sharing all of those different reasons of why it was that you really did have difficulty in really expressing your grief or mourning, like you said, because grief just is like something that occurs and mourning is something we do actively towards. Uh, yes, in our but you, first of all, you have to accept, accept right, your grief. Right. And, and know that that's what you it know, is. You think, yeah. <laughs> you think you don't have a choice. You think you have a choice, but of course you don't. What I did, in, in, and I, I talk about this in the book, I, I was moving like a lunatic. I moved three times in New York City and once in North Carolina. Well, boy, when you move, you keep really busy. Yes. <laughs> what was that about? Right. <laughs> Obviously, it was a way of, of, of just not facing things. Distraction. Yeah, that, the, the non-coping non, non kind of ways of, uh, of yes. doing, which are still coping just in maybe not the ways in which you would have chosen to. Yeah. Yes. Just like how people may seek with alcohol or other, you know, things to deal with their pain. It's still a way of coping. Just maybe not the way in which we'll be more yeah. successful way of, of, of yeah. dealing with yeah. that, with that grief. Yeah. So when you then had the death then of your brother so it was your mother then your brother uh and all of a sudden you have to unpack then this grief that of the your child which had had occurred how many years before you're three month old oh wow a lot of years uh a lot a lot, a lot of years is 25 yeah, years and, and, and you know what it's not uncommon of how you're saying because then you became a mom you know, then after with your daughters, then you're, you're very busy, busy, you were working, you're kind of yeah. going through emotions that maybe yeah. just the time of really being able to sit with those emotions and kind of figure out how to be uh, was just not there. Had your other daughters been born already when you're, uh, no, so he was no, your no, first, first child. child. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a yeah. boy? A boy. A he boy. was your first child. So, yeah. um, and that, and you know, and that's important too yes. because my I subsequently had girls, and I had which was fine with me. I, I had a colleague when I was pregnant with my second daughter, uh, who said, "Oh, you must want a boy." And I said, "Oh, you have no idea how stupid mm -hmm. that sounds, <laughs> and how wrong that sounds." I didn't say that, but I thought mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. you just want a healthy. You just want a healthy yeah. child. At yeah, that point. yeah. A lot of times, yeah, sure, we, we invest so much in in the aspect of it genders and this and that and that after you've experienced what mm -hmm. you went through you just wanted a, you just wanted your child to be okay so here you are unpacking then so would you mind just diving i know you dive much deeper in your memoir 
on the different tools that you use to navigate your grief. But would you please uh, share with us some? Sure. Sure. Uh, the first one was really a product of my being a professor of literature, and I thought I was being extremely original. Uh, I started a program of reading the classic books. I, I went back to Homer, uh, and then I read Dante, and I had taught both Homer and Dante, and then I was continuing on my journey through the classics when I realized that a lot of intellectual people do that. And so again, my question became, well, why do people do that? And I realized, I, I think there are a number of reasons they, they do it. One is that classic books tend to change over a lifetime. And so you can plug into them at mm. different moments. And, and that's, that's one reason. But I also think it's because classics are about really unpleasant stuff, like killing your mother because she has killed your father, sleeping with your mother by mistake. Uh, doing a social protest and ending up getting buried alive. Uh, Dante takes a journey through hell. Yeah. These are not yeah. these are not normal experiences, but they do amplify normal experiences, and I think that's why people read them. And intellectuals read them because there's a there's an order. You do one, then you do the other. Then there's Shakespeare. Then there's Milton. Then there's Alexander Pope. Then there's Faulkner. I mean, it's it's a it's a very stable order. And I think people like that. So that was the first thing I did. And then I started writing a book. I thought about reading the classics and I kept talking about myself. So I thought, oh, it's not about reading the classics, but that was part of it, reading the classics. Could, may I um, ask the you, second I'm thing so that sorry, I, as we're pausing, sure. in the classics, which one was one of those? And I don't know all of them. Shakespeare, I know more, more of because I studied theater, but yeah. what? which one was one that you, when you were reading, stirred up some kind of emotions of your grief that you were feeling either you could relate to something the author was saying or how they expressed or certain phrases that might have stood out for you in your journey is there one that stands out of any that you read yeah well there are two uh one is homer's the odyssey which is a book about coming home and has some very ugly scenes in it at the end which i had conveniently not forgotten, but I hadn't emphasized them in my well, memory. Well, probably also they weren't relevant, uh, maybe, when you read them. Sometimes when we read something again. No, no, no. no. Yeah, like when yeah. we read something yeah, no, in a yeah, different yeah, space yeah. and yeah, where yeah. we are in our life, they have a completely yeah, different yeah, meaning. Yeah, yeah, But the lines that, that uh, resonated for me, uh, the, the goddess Athena tells Odysseus's son, um, Telemachus, uh, it is a wise child who knows his own father. I, I kept thinking it is a wise child who knows her own mother uh, because I was pondering very much the extent to which I was like my mother and what my relationship with my mother was. So there was, that was one. And then the opening lines of Dante's um, Inferno. Inferno, I'll say them in Italian Inferno. and then I'll uh-huh. translate them. Uh, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura Oh, oh, wait, no, don't, don't translate. Let me see if I can, let me see if I picked up anything because I've been doing Duolingo. Okay. La mezza, the, now mezzo, la mezza, the me, middle of our life. Okay. The middle, the the middle, middle, of, middle of, of our, our life, life is, is one that we may think we have to go through the jungle and then realize we have to go through the sea. Something like that is what I, uh, I heard jungle and like I heard that. marita. So tell us, translate. Something like that. It's not, it's, it, no, it's um, in, in the middle of the journey of our life, um, I found myself in a confusing forest and uh, I lost my way. I, I was confused. 
that was those are very powerful lines and and that that's what was happening to me so those were the two classics that were beautiful um, most resonant beautiful. for me thank you um, the, the thing which was extremely helpful, I had done physical yoga for a long time, like most Americans, and not the greatest yoga body, short arms, short legs, but I do yoga for an hour every day, and I still do it. But after my mother died, I started meditating every day for 18 minutes, and that was extremely important because it kind of chills your mind down. And like reading the classics takes you out of yourself, gives you a longer perspective on things. Uh, just as you read the classics in a certain order, you go into meditation in a certain order. So it's like prayer. It's like doing a rosary. It's like chanting. It, it, it's a it's a calming. Like a ritual. It has a ritual. A, a, a ritual. A ritual. A ritual. Yeah. And so those were the things that were most powerful for me. And um, when you meditate long enough, whether you believe in it or not, <laughs> it's very funny. Most people... So, I guess you don't really try meditation unless you're willing to give it a chance. But when you, if you do give it a chance and you do it long enough, your breath slows down, you know, your blood pressure gets lower. And uh, there are certain tools, just simple breathing things that you can do to calm yourself down at any moment. Um, in fact, I, 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 when I teach college and the, the students are getting all stressed at the end of the semester, I make them take a few deep uh -huh. breaths. And I say, oh, did you notice that? That's different, uh -huh. right? And, you know, it's just, it's important to be able to uh -huh. do that. Um, so that was putting all of that together was important to me because um, the subtitle of the book is Books, Family, and Memory Without Pain. And I don't know if memory is ever completely without pain, but you want to arrive at the point where you can retrieve parts of your past without it being a lacerating thing. And the, the reading of the classics and the meditating and, and the yoga, those were all mechanisms which allowed me to access memory. Uh, without it being painful, with it, with it being a, a source of power for me. Thank you so much because this is the first time ever in all the hundred and change interviews I've had that somebody has used reading the classics as one of their tools in their grief journey. Oh, really? Yes, because mm. the majority of us go yeah. straight to probably looking for that grief story you know a story of a memoir of somebody yeah. that's gone through like somebody picking up your book oh, as yeah. a way of Going, yeah, so. yeah. I, I did that too. I did that too. I, um, there's one, uh, there's a guy named Francesco Goldman who wrote a book called Say Her Name, uh, which I thought was an extremely powerful memoir, memoir of losing his fiance in a freak accident at the ocean. It was a beautiful book. Um, you know, I mean, I read Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, but I realized I, I was and I was not writing a grief memoir. Um, you know, I mean, it, I, I was, but, and I wasn't writing a self-help book, but I wanted it. I, I guess I felt I had discovered something that worked for me and I wanted to give it in case it worked for mm -hmm. somebody that's, else. That's, that no, that is, idea. that is awesome. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Now, may I ask being Italian American, how did, yes. and you mentioned rosary and you mentioned prayer, how did the aspect of spirituality or religious beliefs play a part in your grief journey or how did it not how did it either help or impede your process of how you were grieving the, the religion in which i was raised which was roman catholicism i would have to say did not help because uh, I, people say that once you're a catholic you're always a catholic and i think to some extent that's true it upsets me very much when i hear someone disrespect 
Jesus or, or the church, even though I'm not, I'm, You're not practicing. I'm no longer a practicing Catholic, but the rituals of Catholicism are very, uh, they're, they're very formal. And in the Catholic mass services, which my father had, my mother had, and my brother had, it's very impersonal. There's a, you are to be comforted because we know that there's an afterlife. You are to be comforted. That's it. So when you don't feel that way, did it end up feeling like you were doing something wrong in your grief journey if you're not feeling comforted? No, no it, it felt like I felt like I was participating in something that had no power for me. The, um, the power of the, the Catholic wake, which I understand, it brings people together and there's, there's inevitably some form of jollity breaks out and it, it, it's a counterpoise to the wake. But the idea of, of, of sitting with the body was also not especially helpful to me. I mean, I think it is helpful for people who are in that tradition and comfortable in that tradition. So th these were rituals that were not potent rituals for me. What brings comfort for some in their grief may not be what brings comfort for others. It is so unique. And so for you, what you had grown up in was not necessarily the way that felt the right way per se for your own grief journey. Right. Right. But it might have been right. for somebody else. It may be for someone Absolutely. else. And that is Absolutely. what we love. Absolutely. That's what I love interviewing people with different upbringings and different perspectives, because sometimes we also feel kind of inadequate when you're going somewhere and you're told that this is how you're supposed to feel. And this is what is supposed to bring comfort. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, but I'm not feeling that way. Then this inadequacy about ourselves adds to that guilt and in that in our grief journey even as well why am i not feeling comfort in prayer why am i not right. feeling comfort right. in knowing right. there's an afterlife in my grief journey and then we may right. judge ourselves right. of course as I, as a writer the writing was also oh, a comforting perfect. thing for me and i think probably for most people as well because the the writing again it's a it's a, it requires order it requires regularity it requires uh, sinking into yourself but not totally sinking into yourself. It needs to be controlled to some mm -hmm. extent. And, um, you know, all of those things. And, and I, that's why I, I, I don't, I would not never disrespect um, somebody who found Comfort. prayer, uh, you know, a, a, a good mechanism, because in many ways, that's what meditation right. was for me. I did, I do find meditation a spiritual mm -hmm. exercise, and I'm, I'm not a believing Buddhist. Uh, but the traditions in which I meditate are loosely speaking Hindu or Buddhist. Again, it's not an afterlife, but there's a there's an energy in the universe, and you when you access that energy in the universe, you realize well that's in you, it's out of you, and 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 that kind of vocabulary, what's in you and outside you, that is religious vocabulary, and so as a spiritual insight, it's, I think it's valuable, and I think it's part of why meditation was such a good practice for in me your, in your journey. Thank you. Now take us into yeah. writing then this book how was then that process <laughs> cathartic really in you uncovering all these things and in your in your morning journey as you're writing this was the this was actually i would say the craziest book i've ever written it's 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 shapely it's short it's almost like a book of poems it's it's discrete essays that you could read as discrete essays it took me so long to write it took me it took me so long to write 12 years well, but normally I write books in about four or five years and they're much, they're, they're denser, much more research oriented books. 
but this is denser in terms yes but this is denser in terms of the emotions that you had to access to be able to write too this book was written in six different versions had six different titles and I, I couldn't give it the shape it wanted. And then finally I said, man, I'm gonna do this. And when I couldn't make it work, I just took it out. And there it was, there was the shape I wanted, uh, which was uh, learning to accept grief, uh, realizing that there were sustaining things in my life, my marriage, my profession, my, my, my children, my grandchildren now, and then accessing memory without pain. So once I took out what was extraneous, it, it had shape. And as a writer, there's great pleasure when you discover the shape of a book and you say, well, it took 12 years to birth yeah. uh, and now many more yeah. years of people enjoying and so forth. In all these different times up in which you're reading and editing and going back, is there judgment as an author, as you write, I've never written a book. Oh, there's definitely judgment. <laughs> as you then, Doing this, like how do you then separate a little bit to then see what is my reader looking for, not just what am I? Well, one of the things you do, you put it aside, <clears throat> you put it aside, then when you come back to it, you're reading it, and if you're bored, you should take it out. So one of the things you do is to cut. But there's a kind of, there's a golden moment when you're writing memoir, when you really move yourself, and you may even be moved to tears and man, you have hit pay dirt. Now that's, that's, that sounds very cynical, but it's true, you know, and even though it's, um, it's grief recollected from a distance, when you, when you recreate that, that's very, very powerful. There, when you publish with a press, I hate to break the, it to the aspiring authors out there, you finish the thing, and if you're lucky, you see it in print a year later. So you have this imposed mm. gear of, cop of just nothing and then copy editing and then the page proofs arrive. And when the page proofs of Crossing Back arrived and I was reading it through, I, I just said, oh, hot damn, you know, this is good. This is good. And it was such a, it was really such a great feeling, you know, to have that happen. And again, it's a kind of, um, it, it's not the mourner's reaction, it's the writer's reaction. I was just going to even ask in that editing process, when you're being told, yeah, cut this. I mean, have you written seven books than you before? So you've been like, when they say, no, this chapter, da, da, da. But I really love it. Like, how do you detach? And, and there's got to be some grief component, even of any other type of book, when you kind of put I your think, baby out there yeah, and then yeah. an editor's telling you, no, take this part off or take this part. And even like you said, even the reaction of some people, to your titles of then you were even re-editing the title of your other book of taking off the other so gosh it takes a lot it, it does take a lot I mean one of the things that I have found very helpful and I was fortunate both with Crossing Ocean Parkway and with Crossing Back to be in a writer's group when I was doing them this hasn't always been the case for me but there's something very sustaining about having friends read and getting friends opinions mm -hmm. and trusting friends opinions as, 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 as you're revising. I've actually been very lucky in my editors. They've, they've done uh, what I would call light editing. Okay. Uh, the, the guy who copy edited Crossing Back had so much knowledge about um, Sicilian culture in a very specific way that I was actually in awe. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of Italian pastry that my mother made. It, it's called the Sfingi. It's, it's fried dough. It's a beignet, yeah. A beignet. It's a, a, the, the fancy name is a beignet. 
Um, but a, a sfingi, it's, you know, it's ricotta and, you know, and flour, but you have to get the texture just right. So in one of my chapters, I use making sfingi, my mother's recipes in general as a recipe, as analogies for writing. And the sfingi recipe, which was a very important recipe for my mother. So it was a very symbolic recipe for me and I lost it. And I, 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 I was trying my mother's recipes and I was writing them into a chapter for this book. Um, and I, I couldn't find it. And then I got a, I, I received a text from my younger daughter and it said, mom, I, found, I did it. I found the Sfingi recipe. And it was like World War II <laughs> ends in Europe. You know, the Sfingi recipe has been found. So I, I, I was able to make the Sfingis and to recreate them. Oh, um, yeah, that's awesome. so there's, there's, stuff, there's stuff like the, that. The, the part of even just that, the aspect of food and passing along that legacy and the memories yeah. that they are, not only associated yeah. with the culture, but like you said, like they remind you of what your mom used to make on these things and yeah. the cultural things. Yeah. And this is a way and, we and, carry and again, on. Stepping into the role of the cook is to, again, it has sequences, it has regularity, it, it, it's in you, it's out of you, it's, it's personal, it's impersonal. And so it has all the qualities of reading the classics and meditating. And I wasn't sure why I was making my mother's recipes, but it was important is, to me that I do that's so. That's beautiful. Like, yeah, just for living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, this, this guy knew the whole story of Sfingi and the variance in spelling. Uh -huh. And I, this, the, we were talking uh -huh. about editors. And this editor knew all that. And I said, man, that is amazing. Yeah, Sfingi. That is wonderful. Yeah, Thank you good. for sharing they're that. They're really good. Uh, well, now I want one. Uh, <laughs> now I want to thank you so much. Now, tell us anything else you'd want to share as to who would be someone that would relate to your books, either one, Crossing Ocean Parkway or Crossing Back. Yeah, well, I think anyone who is, uh, I mean, crossing is a metaphor that has to do with moving from one place to another. So anyone who's involved in some kind of conglomerate culture, and I think that's lots of people these days. If you're Asian American and uh, and married to an African American or to an Anglo American or whatever, any, anyone who's involved in that kind of uh, hybrid mm -hmm. relationship, I think would find either book very powerful. Anyone who um, is experiencing loss or grief, I think would find either book uh, very powerful. Um, they're, they're kind of there's humor in books. I mean, there's there's a uh, there's a tendency in my writing to go for the joke, so you know that's important too. Uh, there's a chapter in Crossing Back about uh, being an academic, a chair of a department, and what that's like. Uh, so uh, academics, I think, would enjoy that mm -hmm. chapter as well. Uh, Duke University is a school which attracts oh. scandal and. Uh, I, I found myself in the middle of one, you know, kind of, it's a long time ago now, but there it was. And I, I think, I think I, I, somebody who takes a lot of pleasure in writing. So I think anyone who's interested in yoga, this book would be terrific. Uh, anyone who's interested in Italian Americans or Jewish Americans, especially the first book, Crossing Ocean Park. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing because yeah, sometimes it's like, okay, who is this book for? And a lot of times we may not think that we may associate with something in the book. And then we do find, like you said, these things no, that we no. relate. I think Southern. Yeah. Southerners, Southerners really relate. Yeah. Gay people really relate. Yeah. Asian American culture and Italian American culture have a lot in common. So there's a, there's a kind of relationship there as well. I want to yeah. read one of the bits that somebody wrote regarding crossing back that I was sent here in your, in the email about you. you. Mariana Torgovnik looks back without anger, but the compassion and acceptance, even for herself at her life and successful career. 
re-examining key elements of her past, including ethnic mobility, family quarrels, un unfinished grief, professional crisis, moves, separations, and reinventions. She writes a new life narrative, a generous and relatable memoir that will chime with the feelings of many readers at this post-pandemic time of reflection and emergence. And this was by Elaine Showalter, a professor at Princeton University. So that right there, I think, summarizes for sure the crossing back and who can relate to that. And how, how amazing yeah. to hear, like, is it like when you hear those things, those, those things, is that like- Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely great. That's absolutely great. And I, I would stress again, because we're all kind of emerging from something yeah. right now. And uh, for most of us, it's a, a, a movement, a more expansive movement. We were constricted and there was harm. And we're now having to assess what that harm is and how to readjust. That was a lovely statement by Elaine Shaw. I know. Like, how does it feel for you when you read when you read <laughs> the things? It's, of it's a, lovely. Oh, it's, it's, it's got to be so moving to hear like what yeah, somebody's yeah. been touched by something you've yeah. written and and what it yeah. what they take meaning out of it. So, uh, is there any last words you want to tell our listeners before we uh, close? No, off? I just want to I want to tell your listeners to, um, to 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 keep on doing what they're doing and and to, um, to just just realize that there's always a chance to reform yourself, you know, and and go for it. And I wanted to thank you for having me. I am so glad you were here and I'll be uh, linking your website where people can find. Do you want to say other places in which people can find your books? Oh, yeah, yeah they can you can find it on Amazon, you can find it on Barnes and Noble um uh, websites uh i suppose in the, in the in the brick and mortar stores as well and you can find i think most people go to amazon so there's a kindle if you, uh, the, the hard, kindle costs almost as much as the hardcover so choose choose what you wish it's a university press <laughs> so they do that uh but it's it's, it's a it, it's a worthy read so i would i would kind of look for it and my website is my name it's your name and i'll put that one yeah i'll put that one down below thank you so much again Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.